today how we hear what we pretend we don't. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. hear what we pretend we don't. You know, maybe, uh, maybe I could clarify a little bit uh, by saying this, that it's interesting to me how what we want most and what we want least normally turn out to be the same thing. There is a reason for that. There's an ironic tension that's sort of built into life that makes it that way. And we've talked about some of these things before, not necessarily in these terms, but in other episodes. And there are, there are things we love to imagine, to, to dream about, uh, like in adventures, things uh, that uh, in movies we think would be glorious and, oh, if we could just have a life that exciting and so on. And yet we work assiduously in life to avoid those very circumstances so that they don't come to pass in the things that we actually do. You know, uh, the, the ideas that pop up in fiction, you know, in novels or movies or uh, television shows or plays or whatever that attract our interest would be, you know, some great last heroic stand against an evil enemy and the person making the protagonist, you know, self-sacrifice and heroic resolve, his forehead set like a flint, you know, valiant effort in the end, and having a clear understanding of his purpose and calling finally in his life and so on. We think that stuff's great, but equally, we don't want the evil enemy to challenge us, and we don't want to lose what we've worked so hard to obtain, and we don't want to be faced with the most difficult which is why it's called difficult, decision in life. And we don't want to risk everything for one moment, which is likely to fail anyway. And we don't want the constraint that restricts us from having the freedom to do what we want. So we say we want self-sacrifice, but we don't want to make a sacrifice. And we want heroic resolve, but we're not resolved to face heroic consequences. And we want valiant effort, but we don't just don't want to apply the effort to get there. And you get the idea. And it's not because we're lazy. It's because those things are really expensive. Risk is real. Danger is real. The, the, the thrill of overcoming danger is only as great as the reality of the danger. You see why the irony is built into, the tension is built into us in the things that we want most and least at the same time? Yet we know the only way we'll experience anything like the triumph and vindication and justification or significance that we feel in one of my favorite old movies to watch once, not to watch over and over, Life is Beautiful. 
or one that I had no connection with, but I watched lately because everybody said, you got to at least see this movie, Top Gun, right? Depending on your proclivities, you know, which direction you go with, you know, what kind of adventure is the thing that really strikes you. The only way that we would ever actually experience the triumph or the vindication or the justification or the significance of one of those great adventures is if something were to emerge so important in our lives that we were willing to lay on the line everything that used to be most important to us. And if the choice of that greater thing, which has emerged, requires the sacrifice of all of the most important things that used to be to us. There is always some opposition or some barrier in circumstances where you could achieve that thing. So great that it costs us everything else to pursue this new great good. So you can understand why we do and don't want exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. Now, that, now this is just an illustration. That's not what I'm talking about today. I know it sounds like that's what I was going to talk about. That's just an illustration to get to the point that in that same kind of ironic sense, that tension between the way things are and the way we think they are or the way they're presented to us, we also don't want to hear the things that we need to hear the most. And let me, and let me say there will be a follow-up to that, which is that we want to hear the very things that we don't want to hear for the same reason that we love the adventure we're trying to avoid. So let me, let me first hit this, this, this first half of the concept, that we don't want to hear the things that we need to hear the most. <clears throat> That's not hard to figure out. The things we need to hear most are quite often painful. You know, they're, they're not pleasant. And they bring transformation to life for the very reason we've been avoiding them, because we're fairly comfortable in the life that we have. And yet we need to hear them because we could be better. Or we could overcome some fundamental flaw in our character or some painful thing that we experience every day, which we don't need to. And I can think of people I know and care about whose addictions, for instance, control their lives and who avoid with great alacrity any exposure to the ideas that might force them to reconsider what they're doing, the things, the painful things that they're avoiding. Let me, you know, th this is the place where I learned this, where I experienced this myself, uh, was in pastoral counseling. And, you know, back, back when I was pastoring, I pastored for, before I'm president at Criswell College now, I've been a professor for 18 years and an administrator, college administrator for the last 10 years or so. And uh, I, so I, I love being in higher ed, but I, I'm, I am a preacher, uh, you know, at, at my heart, at my core. That's what I was called to be when I was 16 years old and or at least yielded to the call when I was 16 years old. And I've been a preacher ever since. And in my position at Criswell College, I get to teach people who want to give their lives. Our students want to give their lives away in ministry, whether in church, vocational or other ministry. And elementary ed or psychology or whatever they're doing, but they want to give their lives away in service to the people God sent us to care about in the world and to him. And so I love doing what I'm doing. For me, this is ministry, being, being in ministry. So for 20 years before I was in higher ed, 
I was in ministry in church, you know, pastoring a church for 17 years, for instance. So in doing that, I uh, developed a relationship with all my congregants. You know, we had a, a tr- I just loved the church that I pastored, and we had a, a great relationship. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. And one of the things that happened over time is uh, I got to know my congregants. They got to know me, and they trusted me, and they would share their burdens with me, their needs with me, and so on. And as I developed, as I got my MDiv, I got, which I got here at Criswell College, by the way, in the early 90s, when I got my MDiv, it included some just, you know, for elementary level. I mean, it's a master's degree, but it's still elementary level counseling. I developed some counseling skills in a class on pastoral counseling. Not licensed counseling, just how does a pastor advise somebody who's coming to him with a crisis, right? And so the more I did it, the more that became the fodder of discussions and Bible studies and so on like that, not, not naming people or talking about their issues, but, you know, just talking about how people overcome this and that. And so more and more people started coming to me for counseling. And I found at one point that I was doing counseling with two or three couples every single night of the week. Uh, and not always couples, sometimes singles, sometimes teenagers, whatever was going on. But sometimes two or three different sessions every night of the week just to do an hour at a time trying to help somebody overcome, you know, a marriage that was falling apart or a teenager face some crisis. Well, there were a couple of uh, young, uh, there were a couple of teenagers at the time. They were just changing, you know, moving from being in high school uh, to being college students at the time. And uh, one of them had gotten saved and baptized and got involved in the church and introduced her friend to the church. She got involved and uh, this friend had some issues, some some kind of psychological issues that were going on, just some personal issues going on that she really wanted to come and talk about. So we had a couple of sessions. She came in and visited and, uh, you know, just start trying to ask questions. How's your family structured? Who are you relating to? Where are the problems showing up? You know, what is it that's making you feel like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then just asking all the questions, and it became apparent pretty quickly that this uh, that this teenager had been abused in some ways, you know, by somebody in her family. I don't know who. And uh, I, at that point, I realized, and this was part of our training, obviously, uh, that we were going to need a, you know, a professional counselor. We were going to need somebody with a license, somebody who knew what they were doing. And so uh, I invited this uh, young lady to, to see a professional counselor. She was willing to do it. So the church actually hired this counselor, brought them to our campus, uh, our, our church campus, and they came and they did the counseling with this teenage uh, girl. And as they did, uh, over time, uh, the counselor, and this was by agreement, we decided to do it this way so we could help each other in the process, uh, the counselor would update me, not on everything, not on every detail. Again, as I mentioned, there are some things that he did not share with me uh, from the counseling sessions, which was right. But as he did, uh, it became apparent to him uh, that as he was getting closer and closer to the real uh, unearthing of the issues in this uh, young girl's mind so that she could confront what was going on, uh, that it was going to be really difficult. And I saw her, I would be on the campus, you know, just elsewhere working when this would happen. And I saw her leave the office a few times and just go home uh, in the middle of a session because she did not want to confront the things that would then cause her to come back and meet with that counselor again and say, okay, let's try again and see if we can get there. Because it was just too painful to unearth the things that she wanted to hear most so that she could confront them were the things that she did not want to hear also. The things that she did not want to hear were the things, she even knew this, that she needed to hear the most. In fact, she needed to hear herself 
say those things. By the way, I, I, I will mention, I still know this young lady. She's, she's a, a, a much more mature woman now, uh, probably in her 40s now, and is just a, a spectacular follower. And, uh, you know, she has a good family. She's healthy and, and just doing great things. And so I'm, you know, not every opportunity turns out in exactly the same way, but I just, since I mentioned the need to you, I just felt like I should probably close the loop, especially in a, in an episode where we're talking so much about narratives. We like the end of a narrative. The end of this narrative was beautiful. It was, it was very good. And, uh, I just, you know, makes me, makes, encourages me to look back on ministry and know that there are people who arrived at the place where she has arrived. By the way, I'm saying all of that, not just by the way, but in the center of the way, I'm saying all of that simply to make the point that that was when it, it, you know, it, it really hit me that it's not a coincidence that some of the things we need to hear are not what we want to hear. It's built into the nature of needing to hear it that it's going to be difficult for us to get there. Otherwise, we already would have heard it. We already would have said it to ourselves. In, and this is, the, this is the point that I was make, said I would make second, which is that we do want to hear the same things that we don't want to hear. So when I, when I was talking about this, this uh, teenage girl coming to counseling, it's very often the reason that people go to counseling, and I, I don't mean this in some statistical way. I'm not making some claim about uh, the disciplines of psychotherapy and stuff. I just mean broadly, this is what I observe anecdotally, but constantly. It would be hard for me to imagine it being otherwise, that the reason that people go to counseling very often is so they can have help from someone to get at what they want to hear. And when they go to that person to get help hearing what they know they need to hear and what they want to hear so that they can lead a better life, so they can have a clearer way of thinking, you know, or whatever it is, so they can get to that state of satisfaction. That person, that counselor they go to, that mentor, if they're not going to professional counseling, they just go see some mentor, fine, is not, you know, if they, if, they, if you do it with any intelligence, you don't simply tell them, oh, well, you know, what you're doing wrong is this. I'll give you a lecture. I'll tell you what you ought to do. Stop doing that. You know, the Bob Newhart approach to counseling. Stop it. That's not what this is. People go to that counselor, they go to that mentor because that mentor knows, that counselor knows, not just to say it to them, but to extract it from them, which means in reality, most of the time, that the information, the knowledge, the words are already in the person. They have so suppressed them, they can't even get them out of themselves. That's how much they don't want what then they want so badly, they're going to someone else and saying, take this and dig down into my heart and pull this thing out that I've got buried so deeply in there, I can't get it out myself. They already know what they don't want to know. They just don't want to face what they want to face so badly, they're asking for help to face it. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, that's not what I want to talk about today either. This is just on the way to get to this point that there's, there are tools that other people, not, not counselors, counselors do this too, undoubtedly. I, I, I mean, I know that. But there are tools that other people use to break through those barriers to the things that we need to hear, not to the things they want to hear. I mean, people outside of us know we need to hear things that we don't want to hear, that we want to hear things that we don't want to hear. And so they develop ways to communicate those things to us 
uh, sort of surreptitiously, you know, so to speak. So one example would be humor. One, this is the first example, and it's one of, the, one of the most powerful examples, by the way. Some of the most impactful influences on culture come from the mouths of comedians. Now, I'm not saying every comedian is enlightening the culture, believe me. Uh, I've listened to comedians, I know. There's a lot of drivel out there. That's fine. And it's comedy, so I don't care that it's drivel. That's fine, too, not even being critical of it. The point is that there are comedians who are some of the most influential people in the culture because they're funny. Not, not just they're funny and therefore they have the side influence. Because they're funny, the door opens for them to have more influence than anyone else in the culture. And I'll just give two quick examples, which you may or may not like, but you can't disagree with the level of influence these people have had in the culture. Now, again, I'm not saying they passed laws or something like that, although some influence may have led there. But I am saying the way they have in, they impacted our culture is profound. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres is an easy example. Uh, she is often cited as the funniest woman, you know, in America and stuff like that. Uh, and I don't know if she is or not. I don't watch the Ellen show. I didn't watch the Ellen show when it was a sitcom, not for any political reason. It just wasn't interesting to me and I had other stuff to do. So nothing, nothing snobby about it just didn't happen to interest me. It wasn't my thing. But that, you know, this is, there were, there were gay pride parades. I mean, there were uh, constant protests and public statements. There were brutalities against people who were homosexual that became public and were, were knowledge in the public sphere, and public attitudes changed very little. They changed some, but they changed very little. But one funny scene where Ellen DeGeneres walks up to the mic and happens to open up about who she is, and all of a sudden our, cult, our culture is just laying down and saying, oh, uh, yeah, we need to rethink this. How, how silly is this? And why is that? Not just, and I'm not just talking about that moment. I just mean being around a comedian changes. Dave Chappelle does the same thing. Not encouraging you to listen to or watch or anything with Dave Chappelle. I'm not saying that. But this person has had a profound influence on a willingness to speak and engage and engage about issues that other people are not able to approach right now without causing a riot somewhere. And you can think he's caused riots. He's had some pretty negative reactions to the stuff that he does. And yet he's had the ability to squeeze it in there, to wedge it in there and get people to listen to it, agree or disagree. Doesn't make the point here. The point here is simply his humor opened the door to it. Why is that? Why do comedians get that opportunity? Why is it that when you're watching that funny movie, all of a sudden you find yourself just in, in balls of tears about something so important? Why is that? Because comedy takes the barriers down. Oh, we're just laughing and joking. It's like being tickled a pillow fight. You know, how, what harm could there be? The barriers are down. The gates are open. And along with all the other debris they bring in, you know, while the gates are open and our barriers are down, Comedians draw, can, not all of them do. Again, some are just vapid. That's fine. But a lot of comedians care, drive dump trucks full of solid ground into our minds. And we welcomed them in. 
and I can I can think of a silly example that is silly and at the same time remarkably interesting as a, a revelation of this happening. And I'm not going to tell you the whole episode. If you've seen it, you've seen it. If you haven't, you haven't, and just let the example go. But in Seinfeld, you know, the anti-dentite episode uh, where, you know, he tells a joke like, uh, you know, what do you call somebody who fails out of medical school? A dentist, you know. He says that to somebody in a funeral, of all things, which sounds pretty Seinfeldish, doesn't it? I'm not recommending Seinfeld. I'm just saying I saw this scene. I, I know the scene. And uh, the guy happens to be a dentist. And so his response is, to, response is to turn around and tell him, you anti-dentite. Well, the episode was filled with other little references to anti-Semitism and to people trying to be Jewish when they weren't, including that dentist, I think, and so on. And so it was a, a, a completely lighthearted skit way to get into uh, this profoundly significant issue of prejudice and uh, mockery and disdain for other people groups and things like that with something a lot of people identified with as nothing but humorous, uh, a joke about dentists failing medical school. Uh, this, was, this is a comedian being able to talk about stuff. Uh, other people, eh. I mean, you can talk about it, but who's going to go? It's an artsy show. Nobody's going to be interested in that, right? Uh, well, with the humor, maybe it's worth it. There you go. So humor lets people into that. The other thing is, and this is related, obviously, it's a form of this, but broader, fiction, just fiction. So, and I mean, this, so you know the line from Chesterton. Everybody, everybody refers to this line in one way or another. It's in his Heretics, by the way, if you ever want to look it up and actually read the material, which is always fascinating, reading Chesterton of, uh, in any way that you can, G.K. Chesterton. In chapter four of his book called Heretics, uh, he had, so he says this, uh, and this is about uh, George Bernard Shaw in response to some of the things Shaw was saying at the time. So Shaw has a, she, he's like a, a realist and a complete opponent to the Christian values and virtues that were sort of traditional in British society at the time, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, he was the opposite of G.K. Chesterton, who was like an early C.S. Lewis, right? That's G.K. Chesterton. So this is his quote from that statement that if you haven't heard, you should be familiar with. Uh, he, it begins this way, though. He has based, referring to George Bernard Shaw, all his brilliancy and solidarity upon the hackneyed but yet forgotten fact that truth is stranger than fiction. That's where the quote comes from. Everybody says it since that. I mean, there's a movie titled that, Stranger Than Fiction. Truth is stranger than fiction. And then Chesterton explains the famous quotation or the idiom, the axiomatic idiom that people were using, even though they'd sort of forgotten it at the same time, the fact that it's true. And he clarifies why it is that way by saying this, truth, of course, of course, must of necessity be stranger than fiction, for we have made fiction to suit ourselves. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we, we often say the inverse of this idiom that Chesterton referred to, the fact that truth is stranger than fiction, because we're, what we ought to recognize is that fiction is the truest stuff that we read. It's not bound by all the factuality and historicity and the constraints of trying to create accuracy and so on like that. I'm not saying it's more factual. Don't get me wrong on that. I don't mean that. But in the same way that Chesterton means it here, fiction allows the author to create scenarios that don't matter. I mean, this happened in 15 minutes, and that happened over there in some village that doesn't exist, but who cares? The emotions, the interactions, the relationships, the motives, those are all 
very real. That's the point of the author writing them, to reveal to us things about humanity, about the depth of humanity and the meaning behind the interactions of humanity that are hard for us to see when we're in the moments of facticity, of the the factual world around us. And so fiction becomes this source of really greater truth. And I'm not playing games here. This is the reason smart authors write fiction, so that they can talk about things that are so true that we might not be willing to hear them if they were couched in what was actually happening. And so good authors, what, what they do, and by the way, he, the argument that he makes, by the way, uh, surrounding that little quotation from heretics, which is, you know, sort of a reference to George Bernard Shaw, who was an outright heretic. I mean, he rejected the ideas of Christianity and so on. A lot of, every idea. He was a cynic about almost everything. Uh, so the argument that G.K. Chesterton makes in that is that Shaw's, George Bernard Shaw's realism, his rejection of ideals and his cynicism about so many things and so on, was really a cloak for his own idealism. That's what George, uh, in case you're wondering, what G.K. Chesterton was trying to accomplish in that paragraph. So he's not necessarily embracing the idea without acknowledging that it also includes some shallow thinking on the other side. That's th- this is what Chesterton's doing. So, But let me get back to the point of fiction being the tool that other people use to break through in you to get you to hear the things that you don't want to hear. And, and if you're not processing what I'm saying to you, you also like that fiction because you do want to hear the things you don't want to hear. So good authors, what they do is they replace you with a protagonist about which you're willing to hear the things you're not willing to hear about yourself. You see what I'm saying? You get the idea? It's pretty simple, and it's fundamental to why we are attracted to certain kinds of literature. It's, why, it's also why representation becomes such an important concept. And uh, by that, I mean, for instance, uh, I remember seeing the visceral, emotional reactions of black men who saw Chadwick Boseman playing Black Panther in Marvel. That meant something to them beyond what I would have comprehended until I saw their reaction to it and said, oh, man, there's some kind of, some kind of serious identification going on between protagonists and the people who follow them in their stories. I watched recently in the same vein, and I'm, I'm just choosing the two racial examples because they uh, emphasize something we don't always pay attention to. There were, uh, I saw a video recently, uh, a ser- you know, like a YouTube type thing. I don't know where it was. Uh, oh, it was on the news of some young black girls. And I mean, you know, maybe five, six, seven years old, these girls who for the very first time saw the new live Ariel, right? The, uh, me, any, the mermaid, the beauty, whatever the thing's called, the, what's the, what's the, what's the thing called? The mermaid, whatever. There's a better name than the mermaid, the Disney movie, you know, the new Ariel in the Disney movie. Come on. What's the show called? What's the thing called? It's uh, the littlest mermaid. The Little Mermaid? The Little Mermaid. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. I don't know these shows anymore. My kids are like in their 30s and almost 40. Have mercy. Uh, My grandkids, I don't watch movies with. So (laughs) anyway, I would. I I just don't need to. So anyway, uh, I, I watched these videos of these young black girls who were seeing for the first time the new live Ariel, that she was a person of color, and they were 
they were just overtaken with their emotion, crying, laughing, uh, dancing. They could not believe that there was someone who looked like them who was doing that. And look, I, I remember when uh, we got my granddaughter, who is of color, when we got my granddaughter, uh, uh, an American girl doll that was black, and she opened it, her first words were, Mom, she looks like me. It was meaningful to her. Because in fiction, we want to identify with a protagonist. We want to identify because that author is going to say something to or through that protagonist that we don't necessarily want to hear about ourselves, but at the same time, we do want to be exposed to because we know it could be about ourselves. It's why some books, not just representation here, but the identification we have with the protagonist, it's why some books or movies or shows can feel too tense. I've been reading a book and just put it down because there was just too much tension. It's, it, it's too much. I don't, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to live through this. Well, why on earth would a book do that to me? So there are some books, movies, and shows that are, that are too tense to finish reading or watching or hearing because sometimes the identification becomes too transparent or it becomes too poignant, too meaningful, and we can't handle it. But a, but a good author knows how to balance that. You know, have the tension, break the tension, pull it back up and have it. Why are they doing that? Why do you have uh, ten, breaks, comedic breaks in the tension of a dramatic movie? Why do you have that? So that your audience doesn't get too stressed out hearing what they don't necessarily want to hear. Oh, we can still laugh. It's still, it's still just a movie. I remember now. It's all, it's all okay. It's going to be okay. All right, all right. Get back to the serious stuff. I can listen again now. This is how we are. I learned this, by the way, uh, in my own experience. I've applied this uh, in the way I do sermon illustrations and in observing, because I'm a preacher, like I mentioned, in observing how other people do sermon illustrations. I have learned. It's so funny when guys uh, or, or, or girls are learning how to speak, when they're learning how to present material so that people will actually listen to it, you know. Uh, the, the hard, one of the hardest things to get is, is illustrations, and one of the reasons for that is because people think they need to find a perfect illustration, something that has just the right weight and gravity and parallels and all this kind of stuff, and they're thinking incorrectly about it entirely, and I won't go through this whole thing I teach about illustrations, but just to make this one point, one of the things I've learned about illustrations is the more trivial the illustration, the more trivial the metaphor or the analogy, the sillier it is, the more powerful the impact can be when you finally bring it back to the conclusion, to the parallel that makes it meaningful. Why would that be? For the same reason humor works. Because when you're telling something flippant, trivial, unimportant, it's lighthearted, oh, look what my kid did with the dump truck, you know, whatever. Everybody's gates open. Their hearts open. The, the fences are down. Oh, I can just laugh with them. And then you drive home a meaningful part of the message that they would have been on guard for, ready to, to shed so that they could leave and continue to live the life they were leading before. Now they've had their fence down and you drove it inside where they heard it hit their emotions in a way they've been protected from for a long time. That can take root and make a difference. And, and I'm, I, I'm not blowing smoke here. I mean, I've done it a hundred times. The difference is profound. Uh, I don't do it every sermon. Uh, it, it is so weighty. It is so significant. 
Uh, it takes some emotional commitment to get there for the audience and for the speaker, both. I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference. So I, I'm bringing that up to say those are tools that people who influence others have learned to use over the millennia. Not just, you know, one group figured it out. You know, over the millennia, storytellers from the very beginning in the Iliad and the Odyssey from there forward and even back beyond that have been telling stories in exactly that way. It shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us. So unconsciously, we, and I mean we as the people who want to hear and don't want to hear, the recipients of this information, this transformation, this influence, and so on, we accomplish the same thing by choosing to spend our time with those fictions, with that comedy, or watching sports even. I mean, sports is just a new drama narrative unfolding every week you get to watch. I mean, it's the same story every time, uh, underdog and powerful uh, leader, and they're going to fight each other and gladiate, and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, and there's going to be a great comeback, or you're going to stifle the great comeback, and, and then it's done. You know, it's the same story every time, but it's a new story every time, and so it's really worth hearing, and then you get to hear the heroics of the person who committed himself to learning this technique and following the, and overcoming the injury, and it's the same thing as watching a movie, except it's fresh right? And I don't mean it's the exact same thing. I know the difference in sports. I'm saying that's why we were so attracted to sports for the same reason we're so attracted to the movie or to comedy or to whatever it is. All of the reasons that we mentioned above, opening the gate, allowing a message to come in that we didn't want to hear directly, but we knew we needed to hear. And so we finally get it. We want to think about, we want to think about the important things in our lives, but without all the cost. But it also does this when we see that fiction, when we watch that sporting event, when we read that book. It also uncloaks a desire we have actually to be in the world where we're living for what's most important. That longing that we have is this sentinel calling out from inside of us and saying, that's what I want. I I want to be a part of something like that. Even if I'm just observing it, I'm acknowledging, I'm uncloaking that desire. And even more importantly, it unearths more of that part of us that longs for our purpose to be fulfilled, for our significance to be found. And so, you know, it's it's not a surprise that in, in Ephesians 4, when Paul is given all of the statements that are in this ethereal spiritual realm about what Christ has done to, done to put us in him, that he says, then, then walk worthy. Don't just have the knowledge of it. Don't just know it, but walk worthy of the vocation. I'm not expositing the passage. I'm just making the point that that step that goes from this beautiful, worshipful knowledge that ends with a worshipful prayer takes the next step by saying, now walk worthy of that. The same thing Paul does after his magnificent doctrinal treatise on the condition of man and our condition and the condemnation and then justification that comes in Christ and his will to bring us to it and so on, says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, proving, finding what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's not a surprise that those things would follow because that's what we were really looking for when we were reading that novel, watching that movie going to the sporting event, attending a play, whatever. It may feel like it's a displacement. 
you know, that is, so in other words, you could hear all of this and say, well, there's something warped about a person who, who, who has to hear it through a fiction because they can't live it out themselves. So it feels like a displacement, like I'm putting it over there in the book instead of living it out. And of course, it's possible to stay in that fantasy. It's possible to keep it over there in the book. But I, I don't think it's a, a wicked displacement of some, thing, of some kind. I think it's designed into us for a really clear reason. The designer, our God, wrote a book that is just cram-packed with stories, one story stacked on top of another that most of us just read like, why on earth is he telling me that story about Judah and Tamar, and please don't ever read it to me again, you know? But every single one of those stories is begging us to hear about us. I mean, we're talking about God here. He could write a book for every person who's born, Okay, here's your baby's book. He'll read it later in life and find out what his purpose in life is. But he wrote one, or 66, or however you want to put it, 1,189 chapters worth, with the same characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. How far down the line do we have to go before we finally realize there are a lot of similarities in those characters, not just to each other, but to us and the things that we face. It's designed into his book for us to read the story. When we're told about Jesus coming into the world, he doesn't give it to us in a theological treatise. He gives it to us in four different authors telling us a story about Jesus walking on the earth, about the Son of God being here. So this this is the point I want to make and, and, and the thing that I would encourage you with in this moment, and that is for us more... Uh, openly, more honestly, and more voraciously to read and listen to and watch and create and attend stories, myths, fairy tales, dramas, comedies, romances, whatever. Yeah, even romances. You don't have to pay attention to them if you don't want to. But, you know, choose all the others. I'm just kidding. They're all there because they speak to us in those things we would ignore otherwise in every story. Biblical and non-biblical, there is an opportunity to learn a little more about the kind of protagonist, the kind of hero God made you to be. That's why the story, the story, when we talk about it, the one that dominates all the other story, stories, that story, which, if you, I mean, surely you know what that is, but if you don't, just think about it. Why is it? Now, and I'll just choose the most obvious. I mean, these are myths brought forward to us, right? These superhero stories, the Marvel Universe and DC Comics and all that stuff. Those, what on earth makes those so popular? This carrying forward all of these mythologies from the past and so on. Do you, do you pay, if you pay attention to those things, you know, there's some reason the superheroes can never get married, that they're always rained on or drowned, that, They have to give up everything for the sake of the ones they're sent to save. Why is that always happening to these superheroes? Why can't can't the guy just, why can't Spider-Man just marry what's-her-name, Mary Jane, and be done with it? Why does it always have to end? Something's got to go wrong. Because all of these stories are dominated by the story, which is the messianic story. Not just because, and this would be enough, but not just because there's one historical Messiah who changes everything. That's true. There is, and he does. 
But all the stories are shaped around that messianic fabric, not simply because there was one Messiah, and that's done, and now there is nothing else to think about in the messianic story. That's false, because we are supposed to be like him. And I'm not just saying every author sits down and says, well, I want to make these Christians better Christians. That's absurd. Obviously, it's not the case. Tremendous number of the best authors in the world have nothing to do with Christianity in their own commitments. They understand a lot of it, but they're not. They're the opposite on in their faith, right? I know that. I mean, why would God make it so that we are so inclined to read these narratives about biblical characters, for instance, or to be so attracted to the story of some hero who solved a problem on the other side of the world, why would he create us like that? Not simply so that we would, and I love C.S. Lewis's point about this, so that we would have a space open in our intellect and our heart for Christ when we're finally exposed to him. I, I, I love that truth, but that's not the end of the truth. It's also because we're supposed to be like him. We're supposed to become like the Messiah. That's the point. So when we learn to encounter these stories, we still have a challenge left. We're not finished. Okay, I'm listening to the stories. Ooh, look, I learned something about myself. When we learn to encounter these stories, we have a challenge left, and that's to lift them out of the pages, pull them off of the screen, to project them out of our thoughts into our decisions and our actions so that they're finally in the world. When we finally become, that is, an incarnation of the one great story, when we finally become little messiahs, Christians. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.